Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is on emerging treatment options for non-metastatic and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. I'm very happy to introduce my co-host, Dr. Michael Cookson. Dr. Cookson is professor and chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine and director of urologic oncology at Oklahoma University's Stevenson Cancer Center. He is the president-elect of the Society of Urologic Oncology and has served as the chair of the AUA guidelines on castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, Mike, welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Victor. Uh, I just want to briefly go over our learning objectives uh, for this podcast, and they are to identify the active agents and their mechanism of action in the management of non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, analyze the evidence and outcome on the treatment of CRPC as outlined in the AUA guidelines and subsequent amendments, improve diagnostic and therapeutic decision-making processes by illustrating the application of these guidelines in urologic practice, and finally, to facilitate discussion with patients and caregivers regarding non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer treatment options. So, Mike, I guess the first thing that strikes me as we do this podcast is the introduction of non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer into the new treatment algorithms. Absolutely. So, you know, the AUA, as you've outlined, has been out in front of some of the excitement with the new treatments that have evolved for the management of men who have failed conventional hormonal therapy, otherwise known as castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, traditionally and historically, the treatment options and the therapeutics that have been developed were based on patients who had demonstrable metastatic disease based on radiographic imaging. And we've done a good job of highlighting in the AUA guidelines patient-related treatments for those patients based on the characteristics that they present with. However, up until recently, we really didn't have any good therapeutic options for men who had a rising PSA, despite no radiographic evidence of disease, a castrate level of testosterone, so they were either had undergone an orchiectomy or were being continued on their LHRH therapy. For those men, we really didn't have any options with level one evidence to show clear benefit until recently. And so that's really the most exciting new thing that's on the horizon for us. So Mike, tell me how the, the um, sort of the guidelines on CRPC came about and then how they were most recently amended. Yeah. So again, uh, it was about 2004 when docetaxel was the first therapeutic agent showing a benefit in men with um, castration resistance, and this um, was in the metastatic setting. But then around 2010, 2011, a whole host of new and exciting trials were being completed for men, and the AUA saw what was happening and wanted to reach out and help clinicians 
and help the patients that they care for. And so what they did was they decided to put together guidelines. And when they asked me to help and assist in this, we assembled a multidisciplinary team, medical oncologists as well as urologists. And we really designed um, a clinically uh, user-friendly, if you will, guideline based on the most common presentations that we see for men in this disease state. And so we bundled patients into sort of one of six index patients based on the way they commonly present in clinical practice. Index patient one, which we'll get back to in a little bit, was that patient who was non-metastatic. And so we knew that there were patients with these rising PSAs, imaging failed to demonstrate any disease, and yet, we needed to address them and figure out a best way to treat them. We didn't have anything until recently for them. For the rest of the patients, the index patients two through six, it was a variety of things. So we, we based the categorization of these patients on the presence or absence of metastatic disease, the degree and severity of their symptoms, whether they had a good performance status or not, and then whether they had received prior docetaxel chemotherapy because so many of the trials initially were written that mandated patients receive that before they could do the study the active agent. So we put those patients into one of six categories based on that, and then sort of define the therapeutic sequencing that would fit patients based on how they fit into those indices. You know, I remember just before the uh, the guidelines were developed and, and when they were in the process of being developed, the AUA did do a um, sort of a needs assessment, and they really recognized a significant knowledge gap that uh, urologists sort of self-reported. And I think it's to the urologist's credit that uh, that they wanted to stay involved in the treatment of their patients with uh, advanced prostate cancer, uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So I think that the guidelines were particularly poignant because it allows those urologists that want to stay in the game and and treat their patients that sort of good knowledge background and good set of uh set of guidelines to follow yeah i mean i think that the AUA has been really essential in helping us but to be honest urologists have always been the primary caretaker of men with prostate cancer we screen we evaluate we diagnose we treat and we're their mainstay as they progress through, unfortunately, some of these treatments for the more aggressive forms of the cancer, they've already long developed a relationship with their urologist, and yet we know that they're going to need additional therapeutics. Knowing when uh, it's a therapy that we administer ourselves, knowing when we need to reach out to a colleague, for example, for a radiation type of therapy, or perhaps an oncolytic or a chemotherapeutic that a urologist may not prescribe, but yet we still hold them in our practice and continue to care for them throughout that continuum. So Mike, just br you know, briefly, if you can sort of go through the guideline, uh, the, the, the prior to 2018 guideline where the emphasis was really on metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and just some of the options and then how this has been amended as we've gone into the, the treatment of patients with non-metastatic CRPC? Sure. 
Well, so for an index patient too, that would be sort of the early recognition of metastatic disease. And those patients were either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and again, had metastases. Those patients had a variety of options open to them. Those included some of the second generation androgen synthesis inhibitor type treatment, such as abiraterone, um, a, an androgen, an anti-androgen receptor uh, blocker, that would be enzalutamide. Of course, docetaxel would be an option for those patients, as well as an immunotherapy, uh, cipulusal T, which is the only immune therapy approved for men with prostate cancer. And it is specifically in that space of an asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic man with metastatic disease. Um, the abiraterone, as we mentioned, it does have a, it blocks androgen synthesis. So it requires the use of a steroid in conjunction with it in order to uh, prevent uh, excess buildup of mineralocorticoid. Um, it is an oral agent and it has been shown to uh, reduce the, uh, or improve the overall survival as well as reduce progression-free survival in men uh, who use this over perhaps a steroid alone. Enzalutamide, which is, was the first second generation androgen receptor blocker, also showed an improved survival in men in this space, as did docetaxel and the immunotherapy cipulusal T. When we start moving into patients who are more symptomatic, we continue abiraterone, enzalutamide, as well as docetaxel, but the immune therapy drops off because that was really approved for patients who, for example, weren't as requiring narcotics, their symptoms were much less in the trial that they were studied in. However, we also pick up an additional uh, therapeutic, radium-223, which has, a, it's a bone targeting agent, it's an alpha emitter that works sort of like calcium, it goes right to the bone and attacks the cancer in the bone. The caveat for radium-223, again, for these type of patients, is that they have symptomatic bone disease and no evidence of any soft tissue or visceral metastases. So if you move past that group of patients, uh, index patient four was really that same symptomatic patient, um, but their performance status was poor. Um, we simply have to highlight that most of the patients enrolled in these clinical trials for these type of therapeutics had good performance status. And so we, we you know, have to point out that for those patients with poor performance status, some of the therapies may be appropriate if the symptoms that get, are driving, the symptoms of their cancer are driving that poor performance status. But otherwise, these agents probably don't apply. In index patient five, these are patients who've had prior docetaxel therapy, they're symptomatic, they have a good performance status. And again, abiraterone has a pre-chemotherapy as well as a post-chemotherapy approval. Enzalutamide has a pre-chemotherapy and a post-chemotherapy approval. Radium, similarly, in the pre- and post-chemotherapeutic space. And then there is a second-line chemotherapy, cabazitaxel, that is also available to patients in that index patient five grouping. Index patient six is really somebody who's symptomatically progressed past the agents that we've just mentioned and really has a poor performance status, most likely due to 
progressive disease. And that's really where palliative care role sort of sets in. So Mike, when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you see a, uh, a patient, is your treatment algorithm fairly standardized or is there a lot of shared decision-making that goes into it? And, and I, I mean, obviously with everything we do, there's shared decision-making, but are patient choices as you go through these different uh, decisions, uh, how, how much do they affect the treatment? And will you see two similar patients that may opt for slightly different treatment regimens dependent on their own desires? Absolutely. It's a, I, I think the, the shared decision-making part of it is a key component, as you mentioned, of all of the care continuum for our patients. But um, when there are multiple agents available within a certain um, uh, presentation, then it really comes down to patient preferences, side effects. There can be some adverse events that could occur as a result of some of these treatments or some of the patient's comorbid situations may predispose them. So we may lean one way or another. Another thing that happens is patients may be more accepting of perhaps a, an oral agent as opposed to a chemotherapeutic, or they may have that narrow window where an immune-based therapy may be the right thing for them at that moment because they're not going to be eligible for that at a later date. So a lot goes into the decision-making, especially we had a significant amendment to the guideline, um, including non-metastatic CRPC. Why don't we start with a little uh, a definition of CRPC and then um, a little bit about some of the unmet needs in treating those patients that hadn't reached that metastatic level? Great. So the index patient one was the asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patient who does not have evidence of metastatic disease. So this is really the first clinical presentation for patients with a rising PSA, despite the fact that they either have medical or surgical castration. That's usually confirmed with a testosterone level, certainly less than 50, and in most patients, it's less than 20. Um, the patient usually undergoes conventional imaging with a bone scan and a CT scan of the, at least the abdomen and pelvis, and there's no radiographic evidence of metastases. So that patient by nomenclature would be defined as an M0 or non-metastatic CRPC patient. So in practice today, and I, I know this, is, this amendment is relatively recent, but when you see patients with non-metastatic CRPC, how many of them opt to be treated? Well, they're very nervous. And when, you know, patient, one of the other names for PSA is patient-specific anxiety. When we see a rising PSA, that usually creates a lot of angst. These patients know, and so do their clinicians, that their PSA is an early indicator of a problem. They're escaping conventional therapy, but then predicting what will come and how soon that new metastatic site may develop is really part of the equation. There have been studies usually designed at looking at, say, bone-targeted therapies where they watched men who did not have metastatic disease develop it. And what we've learned is that the rate in which their PSA is rising, also known as doubling time, 
is a really strong prognostic indicator of whether that patient might be appropriate for treatment because they're in trouble or certainly at risk for that progression to the bad event, which is the development of those metastatic sites. And so in the studies that we're gonna talk about in a minute, they knew that and they enrolled patients who had these rapidly rising PSAs um, usually less than 10 months in terms of the doubling time. So is it fair to say in your experience that most men who are in this non-metastatic CRPC um, area do opt for treatment? I think if they're appropriately counseled, they would opt for treatment based on the risk factors. So we'll get back to this in a minute, but even though in theory, all men in this situation could opt for a treatment, most clinicians are trying to target the treatments, which have costs to them, which could have side effects to them, to the patients who need them the most. So in a patient with a slow rising PSA, they may opt to simply be observed, whereas the patients with those more concerning rises in PSAs are often gonna be counseled for treatment. And you, got, you mentioned the unmet need prior to these two landmark studies. Really, we didn't have anything to, to really throw at them from a level one evidence, really slow the process, or even predict how it was going to work. So the, the options for those men who found so simply observing to be unacceptable were things such as ketoconazole, perhaps bicalutamide, um, but those, none of those treatments really resulted in much more than a slight reduction in PSA for a very short period of time, only to be followed by a rapid increase. So again, therapeutic options prior to 2018 were really not evidence-based and, and really just there so that a clinician might have something to offer, but it was really just manipulating the PSA a little bit, really not resulting in a, in a strong outcome or a good endpoint. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the data that uh, allowed uh, for the change in the guidelines and uh, the non-metastatic uh, randomized controlled trials that uh, were done that uh, brought about this change. Sure. Well, there were two studies in 2018 that were um, now both published and, and both have been presented. And the first, uh, was the first one, not in any particular, but the PROSPER study, was um, one of those studies. It was a randomized double-blinded phase three study that looked at the use of enzalutamide as compared to placebo in non-metastatic CRPC or castration resistance. It did mandate that patients had a rising PSA, a doubling time of less than 10 months, and their PSAs for inclusion in this had to be above two. Um, the primary endpoint was a new endpoint for prostate cancer patients called metastasis-free survival. So traditionally and up until now, all of the agents that I mentioned had received their FDA approval based on an overall survival advantage. But this was the first time that for enzalutamide, which already had an overall survival advantage, as I mentioned in the metastatic CRPC state, this was the first time that they got a new indication for the non-metastatic patients, and it was specifically designed based on that metastasis-free survival. So what they were looking at was from the time these patients 
enrolled in the study to the development of a metastasis and or death, um, they looked at what the benefit or harm could be from a study using enzalutamide. And what they found was a fairly significant 71% reduction in the development of metastases or death um, in the patients that used enzalutamide. This was almost a two-year difference between the placebo and the uh, treated patients. So that was fairly significant. In addition, there was a there were secondary endpoints. Some of them have not been yet met, but things such as reduction in the rise of the PSA or PSA-free survival, time to need for additional anti-neoplastic therapy, again, highly significant, almost an 80% relative risk reduction, and there was preserved quality of life. If you remember, these are asymptomatic patients, and so they're watching their PSAs rise and they're trying to prevent a bad outcome. So it's important that the treatments that we introduce to them are not toxic or impair their quality of life. And in fact, it looked like the quality of life was preserved or improved in these patients. The second study, which was very similarly designed, Spartan, was again a randomized clinical trial, double-blind placebo. Um, in both of these trials, I believe two out of the three patients received the treatment. In this case, the drug was called apalutamide. And apalutamide, as well as enzalutamide, are both androgen receptor blockers, sort of that second generation um, uh, uh, therapeutic that really has a strong impact on affecting the ability of testosterone to um, attach to the tumors and, and to, to help them grow. So in this study, similarly, there was a 72% risk reduction in metastasis-free survival, again, the, from time of randomization to the development of metastases or death, and again, preserved quality of life and important secondary endpoints such as the PSA-free progression, as well as use of additional anti-neoplastics. The, both of the studies were very similar in that they did both require that rapid rise PSA doubling time of less than 10 months. Both of the studies had very positive, statistically significant um, impact on that endpoint, that primary endpoint. None of, neither of the two studies are yet mature enough to report on the traditional overall survival endpoint. So we really still don't know the impact of these early therapeutic interventions on the overall survival, but certainly for the study design and the FDA felt that this was a critically important endpoint, the metastasis-free survival. Both of them hit very strongly and have shown a way forward for patients with this disease state. Well, I'd well, like I'd to, like to, I'd like to I'd finish, like to finish up, up by, by talking, talking a little bit about what the next steps uh, in uh, guidelines for advanced prostate cancer um, will be. Now, one of the uh, one of the great things that I've been able to experience as chair of the Office of Education is uh, the partnership that we've developed with the SUO. And I, uh, you know, I, on behalf of the AUA, I want to thank the the SUO leadership um, and, and uh, those who have come before you, uh, Chris Evans, 
uh, and yourself for uh, helping us to uh, establish uh, that um, that relationship. Uh, we've had uh, some really excellent uh, courses at our AUA annual meeting and at the SUO winter meeting, which we'll continue to do on metastatic castrate uh, on on metastatic and non-metastatic uh, CRPC. Um, and we've also had the, the AUA partnership with SUO on development of the guidelines. So I think it's been just a, a great collaboration. Um, where are we going next with all this? Well, thanks for mentioning that. I, too, agree. Uh, the partnership with the Society of Urologic Oncology and the AUA has been a very strong one. It's permeated into the trainees, those courses that we've developed in a variety of formats, both live as well as podcasts and webcasts, um, but helping not just fellows in the Society for Urologic Oncology approved fellowship training, as well as those who care the most, large group practices, et cetera, for men with advanced prostate cancer. But I think it's really becoming weaved into the fabric of, of even the residency programs now. And I think the partnership that's developed has helped that. Most of the excitement now is moving into patients before they become castration resistant. We don't want to see that. We'd like to eliminate that sort of man-made, artificially created disease state. And so there's been an excitement in trials that are now directed at men with newly diagnosed advanced and newly diagnosed hormone naive or endocrine naive have never been treated prostate cancer. And so some of the trials that include names like Latitude, Stampede, and Charted have been landmark. Historically, all we really had when men metastasized was traditional hormonal therapy, either an LHRH agonist or antagonist or orchiectomy. And we had a certain amount of benefit that we saw from that type of treatment. Now, earlier combination chemotherapy and androgen deprivation therapy, or what we might refer to as androgen annihilation, traditional hormonal therapy combined with some of these newer oral agents such as abiraterone and prednisone, that's where we're seeing significant 12 and 18 month additional survival advantage for men. So while most of the studies that we've mentioned from the CRPC guidelines really were tried in men with heavy burdens of disease initially, failed several therapies, including chemotherapy. Now we're getting a chance to introduce some of these more potent therapeutics at a much earlier stage in their disease state, and we're seeing much better benefit. We're still not curing the cancers in most cases, but we are seeing significant survival advantages for the patients, which is really beginning to be a game changer. And so the AUA recognizes that, and we're going to move into an advanced and newly diagnosed metastatic AUA guidelines, the first ever, if you can believe it, considering you know the Nobel Prize in the 1940s for the use of androgen deprivation and its ability to, to impact on metastatic disease. We really have a, have a significant gap in our knowledge and a need to really review this in a critical way, as only the AUA does when they do this evidence-based review. It's very, very thorough, and we're hoping to bring that product forward very soon. Mike, how, how important is are, are some of the newer imaging modalities and PET scanning in, in uh, treatment of advanced prostate cancer? Yeah, so I 
I'm losing count of the number of trials out there and the number of agents, but we now know that some of this non-metastatic CRPC is really just a limitation of our ability to image the metastases. They're small, they're hard to find on traditional imaging, but many patients harbor these small metastases. PET scans, um, some of the newer agents that are coming out are much better. Now, there's only one FDA-approved agent currently, but I think within the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing an explosion of PSA, PSMA, uh, various um, uh, agents linked to um, detection on uh, of metastatic prostate cancer at a much earlier state. That too will then create new challenges for us as we try to uh, figure out how our therapeutics that we traditionally thought were for perhaps non-metastatic or really just a limitation of our imaging. But we are going to get better at imaging and we are going to get better at finding these metastases. And I think that the field is going to move even towards linking therapeutics to these diagnostic um, radiologic agents to try and, and go directly to the tumor sites and treat them. Well, Mike, thanks for that really uh, excellent summary on uh, where we stand with uh, CRPC, the uh, 2018 update uh, to the guidelines. Uh, I, it was very informative for me. Uh, it makes me uh, appreciate uh, what goes into the treatment of these patients, both from the knowledge of, of treating their disease and also the ability to communicate with patients uh, to offer them uh, all of these various options and to come up with the right treatment plan uh, for the individual patient uh, to uh, put that patient at ease and let that patient know that there are options uh, for treatment at various stages along the way. I just want to also uh, emphasize to the, uh, the listening audience that we do have uh, courses uh, on uh, advanced prostate cancer and uh, uh, CRPC that we do. Uh, there's Society of Urologic Oncology and AUA courses that we do at both annual meetings, the, uh, the SUO winter meeting and the AUA annual meeting. So look out for those. And uh, uh, Dr. Cookson uh, has been the course director or, or course co-director uh, for those and uh, uh, along with Dave Gerard, And those are really uh, excellent courses. So if you want to learn even more about this topic, I would encourage you to attend uh, one of those two uh, live meetings uh, if you are at the SUO meeting or at the AUA annual meeting uh, next year. Mike, thank you so much for uh, for being with us, for taking the time for doing this, and thank you for uh, all that you've done uh, for the AUA on this uh, very important topic. Thank you, Dr. Nitty. It's my pleasure, and I want to thank the AUA for continuing to do all that they do, especially as a partner with the SUO, the Urology Care Foundation, and all of the tools that are available to help patients and improve the care of men with advanced prostate cancer. Uh, thanks, and thank you to the audience for listening. And uh, as always, if you need more information, please visit uh, uh, auau.auanet.org.